Ladies and gentlemen, what you're about to listen to is an experiment in sound. Call it treating your ear. Will yep. Eastman is a DJ. This is called the microphone, Will. This is what MCs use. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Back in the days of the boom bap in the Bronx and places like Queens. One, two, one, two, check. One, two, one, two. Check. Check. Hi. <laughs> Sorry. Complete happiness. Paradise. Heaven. This is Merriam-Webster's definition of bliss. Welcome to Madcap. I'm David Ross. And I'm Daniel Bloom. Bliss is also the name of a long-running party founded by today's guest, Will Eastman. The name Bliss came about because I just spent a lot of time thinking about it. It's like, what is this to me? Like, what is music to me? And so there were a bunch of uh, different names that I was bouncing around. And I was talking with my good friend at the time, uh, Jimmy Tassos, who who runs a record called Matinee, which is sort of a long-running indie pop label. And he was he was living in D.C. at the time. And we were sort of going back and forth on the names, and and Bliss was sort of like the one that I'd settled on. He's like, you know what? That's it. That's perfect. That says it all. Will Eastman has realized many dreams by following his bliss. From his childhood in Nino, Wisconsin, to college in Minnesota, and eventually to graduate school and a job at the Smithsonian here in Washington, D.C. People thought he was crazy to quit his job at one of the world's most prestigious institutions for a career in music. So let me get this straight. <laughs> you have a, a job at the Smithsonian, a master's degree, and you're in your 30s and you're going to leave this job to be a DJ? Today, he's a successful producer. One third of the band Volta Bureau and co-owner of the spiritual home of DC dance music, U Street Music Hall. Leading us into our conversation, here's one of Will Eastman's latest releases. This is out on Main Course Media, titled Caroline. I started playing the bass when I was 15 years old. Actually, I started screaming in a punk band when I was 15 years old and that was my first sort of role and it was just sort of screaming and jumping around you know when when you jump around like a monkey you get away with sounding like one and that was sort of our steez you know we were like a hardcore punk band or called bad culture that could be like the punk band name generator it's like bad noun <laughs> exactly whatever like exactly <laughs> bad finger bad brains bad flag like whatever you want there are a couple demos that one of uh, our friends from back in the day posted to soundcloud so if you search you know bad culture they'll come up there one nation under god indivisible with liberty and justice for none You know, I, I really fell in love with the bass. I played it sometimes like six or seven hours a day, sometimes more. And, uh, you know, I started studying, you know, Flea and Jaco Pastorius. I really got into it. And, you know, when you're young, you pick up things really quickly, and it was that sort of thing. It's like I wouldn't be able to pick up an instrument that quickly now, but I could then. And so I sort of, within a year's time, had kind of like gotten the grasp on the bass and... Um, 
you know, then when I was 17, I picked up guitar because I wanted to start writing songs, and it's easier to write songs on guitar. So I've been playing guitar since I was 17. Any other crucial bands that really influenced you? While, oh, we're, while we're still in Wisconsin. Sure. Got, um, DC bands, Minor Threat, um, ah. Dag Nasty, um, you know, Scream. Um, I, I first uh, uh, saw Dave Grohl play drums in, uh, in Scream when he was touring the Midwest. In, uh, he played a show in Madison, Wisconsin, and he was this skinny little white kid kind of like myself and he got behind the drum kit and they uh came out and put two cinder blocks in front of it and i'm like really you need that this the skinny kid's gonna be able to push that big kick drum that far and then he started playing and it was like holy crap this guy has like lots of power in him That's Arlington's finest right there, Dave Grohl. Yeah. So Really? Yeah, he's from he's from Northern Virginia, local guy. So like um me and my friends grew up on the Discord vibe, even though none of us had ever visited DC. I wouldn't visit DC for another four years. And uh it was just sort of that influential in the eighties hardcore. So when I look back at like how I look at music, I didn't meet Ian Mackay until I was well into my 30s but he had a huge influence on a young me like the way a young me looks at the world it's like you can do stuff for yourself you don't wait for somebody to to give you permission to start a record label or start a party or be a promoter or start a band if you feel like it and if you feel passionate about it and if you have the energy to do it And beyond that, then there's the other the other aspect of it where it's like, well, once you've done it, you're not beholden to outside interests, you're not beholden to corporations or business interests. And um, if you're doing it for money, you know, maybe you should like look at your motivation a little bit because uh, you know, great art does not come from being motivated by a financial interest. There's no set of rules. I'm not telling you what to do. All I'm saying is I'm bringing up three things that are like so important to the whole world. I don't have to find much importance in because of these things, whether they're whether they're fucking or whether it's playing golf. Because of that, I feel And then there were also other things that we saw. It's like, oh, hey, they did this uh, record as a benefit for uh, homeless people. It's like, hey, you know, let's do a benefit. Let's do a, a rally against uh, nuclear arms, you know, stuff like that. I, I probably never would have, we, we never would have thought of that if we hadn't taken a cue from the whole Discord record spot. We have a nonprofit foundation at, at U-Haul that goes to benefit school programs in music for, you know, local area students. and. I can't say for sure that Ian Mackay influenced us to do that, but on the other hand, it's like I'm pretty sure that the things that we do like this, part of the influence is from those early experiences. Well, talk about what brought you to the great environs of our 
nation's capital. What attracted you here the, for graduate school? I came here for grad school. I went to school at GW for museum studies. Where'd you do undergrad? Uh, University of Minnesota. And Gopher. Uh, Golden Gopher. Golden Gopher. In the house? Yes. Golden Gopher. Goldie the Gopher. Um, <laughs> that's our mascot. <laughs> That's hardcore. Um, Goldie, a great D&B pioneer. <laughs> He's huge. <laughs> He's huge in that's, Minnesota. That's with an IE, not a Y. <laughs> At that, I was at that show. It was amazing. Goldie was definitely amazing. It was a real inspiring night. We'll talk about that a bit later when we get to so, Street Music. So Home. about half the kids who went to college in my high school went to uh, University of Wisconsin-Madison, and being kind of rebellious by nature, I decided that I should go to Minneapolis because it had a better music scene. So I went to college in Minnesota largely because, you know, that's where the replacements and Prince and Bob Mould were from, Soul Asylum. You know, I studied anthropology at Minnesota and Humanities, which basically, after you have a bachelor's degree, qualifies you to uh, work in a used bookstore or go back to school. So playing in indie rock bands and wanting to kind of give that a shot and see where that went, I decided to work in a used bookstore for a couple years before I went to grad school. So I did that, and I played in a couple bands, uh, met some great people, played with some great people in bands, and worked at a cool bookstore. What was it called? At first it was called Cheapo Books, then it changed its name to Smart. Um. <laughs> <laughs> Did they yeah. bring in a consultant for that one? <laughs> yeah. You know, this whole yeah. Cheapo branding is not really working out for us. We're not exactly getting the right clientele. Let's change it. I don't know. It's Smart. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's so, hilarious. So, yeah, that was... That let's, was let's stop selling sandwiches and change that, the name. That was quite an experience, but, um, you know, working in a, in a secondhand bookshop, as a buyer, you got to know like what books people are interested in. You got to know something about literature. It was it was like a miniature sort of graduate education in in literature and economics of running a small business. So like after working in this used bookstore for a couple years, it was time to go to grad school. So I came out here, went to GW. Colonials, big up. Colonials, yeah. No football team at at GW though. They play basketball, basketball though. So I got recruited by the Smithsonian after I graduated there and worked for for uh, the National Museum of American History for 10 years. Recruited by the Smithsonian? That's dope. Well, I, I had a... Um, a uh, Were they showing up to your house? Like, it no, it, it wasn't... <laughs> Whining it was, and dining? <laughs> it, was, it wasn't like being a basketball player for the Colonials. You know? But I, my grad well, you've school been drafted Smithsonian. was, was, was um, at the time uh, chief curator at the museum and... Uh, so I, I went to him and said, hey, I'd like to go work work for you guys. And he's like, okay, well, let me see what I can do. And then set up some interviews, and I ended up um, landing a, a pretty good job there. And, you know, I really, really loved working for the Smithsonian. I mean, it's it has the best mission statement in the world, you know, the increase in diffusion of knowledge. You can't really beat that. And there are a lot of really passionate and uh, smart people who work there. But over time, you know, I started my party Bliss in uh, 2000, and uh, I started DJing around the same the same month that I started working at the Smithsonian. And over the course of time, my night job just kind of started to get in the way of my day job. So I had to, you know, I had to have a make a really tough decision, which was like taking a step back and being like, what What am I here for? What What am I doing? 
with my life? Like, what was I put on earth to do? And at the time, it was really like a tough dilemma. You know, it seemed like, what am I, what am I going to do? But when I cut through all of the, like, emotions of it and all of the sort of external stuff and just thought about, like, okay, what do I do when nobody's telling me what to do? Well, what I do when nobody's telling me what to do is I set up parties and DJ to people. Okay, does that make money? Yeah, it makes money. Enough to make a living? No, but maybe it could. So so I just took the jump. And at the time, it felt like I was walking potentially off a cliff in the dark. You know, you have no idea if this is going to work. You know, I had enough money saved to last me like six months. And when six months had passed and a year had passed, then... Uh, I was like, okay, this is working out. Everybody can envision the eureka moment of invention, where the idea suddenly strikes and boom, all at once, it seems there's a new product ready to change the world. But it turned out to be the best decision I've ever made in my life. At the time, it was very scary. It was a very scary decision. Before we get away from uh, the Smithsonian, we gotta talk about inventive voices. Yeah. Yeah, 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 they're still up there. I listened to some of them. Cool. From the National Museum of American History in Washington, welcome to Prototype Online, Inventive Voices. Brought to you by the Smithsonian's Lumbelson Center for the Study of Invention and Innovation. I'm Will Eastman, the new host of Inventive Voices, and I look forward to sharing stories of invention and innovation with you in the months to come. Can you teach someone to be an inventor? The folks who study invention and innovation at the Lumbelson Center say yes. Yes, you can. Or at least you can give someone, particularly a young person, the tools to think more inventively. In fact, they have a new... So I worked for a great center. It's called the Lumbelson Center for the Study of Invention and Innovation. And um, the guy ended up going to work for at the Smithsonian, Art Malella. He's the director there. He's a great mentor, the single most influential person in my life besides my parents. And he sort of took me under his wing and was really a great teacher, great mentor. And I ended up working for him for 10 years. And um, a lot of the stuff that he taught me I still use today, you know, in my music production career, in my DJ career, you know, as a club owner. It's funny because when I left my job at the Smithsonian, a lot of people were like, so let me get this straight. (laughs) You have a, a job at the Smithsonian, a master's degree, and you're in your 30s and you're gonna leave this job to be a DJ? It was just sort of like mind blowing to a lot of people. You know, there was, um, the elderly African-American woman who, who worked at the front desk of the, of the apartment building I, I was in at the time, it's like, she was like such a sweetheart, always looking after me, you know, she's like, she's like, I got your mail here, Mr. Will, and she's, one day she's like, you know, son, can I talk to you for a second? I'm like, yeah, sure, what's going on, Helen? She's like, I noticed you haven't been getting your pay stubs from the federal government. Is oh, everything snap. everything okay? And I was like, yeah, Helen, it's cool. You know, I, you know, I left the Smithsonian, you know, a couple months back. She's like, oh, really? Where are you working now? I'm like, well, I'm, I'm DJing. And she just gave me this look, like this blank stare for like a second. And then she says, you left your job at the Smithsonian to be a DJ? And I'm like, yeah, I did. And she's like, all right, well, I hope you know what's going on. You know, like, I'm a little worried about you. <laughs> and then it was like a month later or something, um, you know, Washington Post did a style section, did a did a piece on me or Bliss or something, and she saw it. And then she was like, I saw you in the paper. It's like, good, good work. <laughs> but it was great. You know, it's like Helen was looking out for me. Would the parents say when you? At the time, like, the only people who thought it was a good idea were my boss at the Smithsonian, Art, 
That's positive. Awesome. That's and, positive. And my mom. Okay. Thanks, mom. And one of my best friends, Brian Miller, who I'm in business with now, he's one of the partners at U-Haul. But almost everyone else, including my girlfriend at the time, thought it was a bad idea. You know, I, I told her and she was like, well, maybe you're just burned out. Maybe you should go look for a different job in the museum <laughs> field or something. And I was like, no, I'm doing this. And uh, <laughs> so that, that didn't work out. We broke up shortly yeah. after. But um, <laughs> almost everyone thought it was a weird idea. And I think my mom was a lot more supportive of it than my dad was just because I think she accepted that I was kind of a weirdo artist personality a lot sooner than my dad did. But <laughs> they weren't unsupportive. I think for them it was mostly a kind of like recalibration where they were like, okay, I've been telling everybody for the past 10 years that my son works at the Smithsonian. And that's been working out really well for us. <laughs> now I have to tell them that my son's a DJ. That's kind of weird. But then you know, again, it, again, it was, this, I love that. Again, it, it was, again, it was the same thing. You know, when I left the Smithsonian, you know, my, my boss art was like, he would email me, you know, pretty regularly and be like, how's it working out? You know, you making money? Is this working? You know, maybe we could find something for you here if, you know, you wanted to come back or something and be super supportive. And, and I was like, yeah, it's working out. It's cool. And then, and then finally, you know, I've invited him and his wife to come see me DJ. This was when I was DJing at the Black Hat backstage. And they came on a bliss night and saw me DJ. The room was packed, lying outside the club. And, you know, then after that, they're like, oh, you're going to be fine. hard to explain to somebody who's 60 years old who has never been to a place like U-Haul or, you know, seen a DJ. It's, it's hard to explain to them, like, so you tell them what you do and they're like, so, so let me get this straight. You stand up in a room and play records for people and they dance and you get paid to do that? You know, it's just sort of like hard to wrap your brain around until you see it. Then when you see it in action, then you get the dynamic of it. You know, it's not just, well, it's not just playing records for people. There's like, there's an expertise to it. And, you know. an ex and there's an experience to it. <laughs> there's a whole experience to it. And the way somebody does it and the personality with which somebody does it is what distinguishes them from somebody else who may just be standing in a room playing records for, for people. Last question about the Smithsonian. How is your current profession related to your previous one? Oh, sure. Um, it's very similar. I use a lot of the same... Um, brain cells doing what I do now as I did when I when I worked and wrote exhibit labels and put together programs at the Smithsonian. And what you're doing as a historian and what you're doing as a DJ or really anybody who's involved in the arts or media or academia is you're distilling a large amount of information, coming up with an interpretation and then presenting it to an audience. And, you know, that's essentially what DJing is, it's communicating, and that's what a historian does. A historian communicates an interpretation about the past. That's what an academic does, whether it's a, a paper on, um, you know, a disease or a paper on, like, the sociology of certain culture in the past or certain history. 
you know, not to put too fine a point on it, obviously there there are very different aspects involved with with the work. People come from have different training, they have different backgrounds, they work in different environments. But at the basic bottom line, uh, the basic like core principle of it, I feel like they're very similar. Um, it's it's communicating. Um, you know, you can't be a good DJ without being a good communicator. You can't be a good historian or academic or radio person without being a good communicator. That's that's the basic skill that's involved with it. So when it comes down to preparing and executing and booking and lining up and promoting DJ gigs, yeah, it's all very similar to the work I did at Smithsonian. Again, thanks for tuning in to Prototype Online, Inventive Voices. I'm Will Eastman. We'll be back again soon from the Smithsonian's Lemelson Center with another look at invention and innovation in the 20th and 21st centuries. You're listening to Madcap, and our guest, Will Eastman, isn't hosting podcasts for the Lemelson Center anymore. These days, he's a successful DJ, producer, and club owner who's been running his own dance night called Bliss since 2000. First of all, the name spent a lot of time thinking about it and um, and sort of planning it and thinking about the party and, and the vibe and the party comes out of a program series that I did a few years before that that was called Anorak City, which was named after another Sunny Day song, one of my favorites. The whole idea came about because I was sick of going to shows and hearing the sound guy play whatever crappy music he was into in between bands. and. A lot of times it just didn't fit the vibe or make sense and I was like it would be great to see a show that's curated and there are DJs and bands and they play they're like-minded and the DJs play and then the bands play and it's all really seamless and it's like a curated sort of experience and so I did a few of those and then um, where they were all over DC the Galaxy Hut um, the Black Hat at the old Black Hat so those parties went pretty well we had you know, half a dozen of them or so. And I just had my friends DJ and I just took up the DJ duties myself for, for one of them. And I just really instantly fell in love with it and ran with it. And it didn't take much beyond that for me to realize like, well, you know, I can throw a party with me just DJing. So maybe I'll do that. And really at the time, the whole vibe and scene that Bliss and Bliss Pop came from was that in the late 90s and early 2000s, like the indie dance music didn't exist. It wasn't a genre. LCD sound system didn't exist. Like cut copy didn't exist. There was no sort of like culture of melding this like energy and DIY enthusiasm of punk with disco and dance music. They were mutually exclusive up to that point. So to play stuff like Chic and ABBA and house music and The Clash. (laughs) 
and New Order and Joy Division together was a real mind-blowing thing. This is before DJM was dropping ACDC in Las Vegas, etc. It's like, it just was a different time. You know, people went to, they wanted to hear hip-hop, they went to hip-hop clubs, they wanted to hear house, they went to house clubs, they wanted to hear Top 40, they went to a Top 40 night. But there really wasn't a place to hear dance music in a no attitude, no BS, no velvet rope, no expensive cover, no dress code place. What about internationally? Internationally, I think, you know, the UK was farther ahead. There were nights that existed there, and a lot of the stuff that, you know, I was doing was taking a cue from, like, the social in, in London and stuff that was going on. But, like, that's a world away, you know. That's yeah. not America. It's not D.C. <laughs> so Bliss came about just because I wanted to do guitar-based and underground electronic music in a rock club environment. That was the only place to do it where there wasn't a velvet rope, where people weren't going to have a dress code. It's the perfect venue. It was the perfect venue to start it. So we started the night, and the first one I actually did at a club called the Metro Cafe, which is now defunct. It was on 14th Street in church. And um, a guy there has since passed. His name was uh, Nick Nichols. He did the the booking there. And um, he gave a lot of a lot of us cats kind of our first chance in DC like uh, DJ Dread was there Bill Spieler Lil E myself Tim Pogo Panic Mousetrap started there which was a long running Britpop party in DC and a lot of us sort of got our start there and it was because Nick believed in in this sort of vibe so we did the first <coughs> one and uh, you know 40 people showed up and I figured that would probably be the first and last one and at the end of the night, Nick was settling up, and he was like, well, good job, Eastman. I'll see you next month. And I was really shocked. You know, I didn't think we'd get another chance. And, um, <laughs> you know, he gave it that chance, and I've been doing it for uh, for 13 years now. I love that. You didn't think he would give you a second party. I didn't think he would at you all. You didn't think you would get to night number two. No. And you made it all the way to owning the best club in the world. <laughs> From not thinking you'd make it to gig two. <laughs> it's pretty good. Well, you know, the party's changed over the years, you know. Uh, yeah, we, I, I'd say uh, so. <laughs> you know, it, it's evolved. You know, indie dance became a genre of its own. You know, we've played underground house, you know, club music, electro, you know, hip-hop, you name it. And really, you know, now it's a, it's a techno party now. And, um, and why? It's because the music that I'm most inspired by and enthusiastic right now is underground techno. I think this is going to be a really good year for techno. This is Will Eastman's track, Nikkei, from Main Course Media. Bliss has has always been a party that's what I feel like playing. And in that sense, it's like, yeah, I'm a dictator. I'm the absolute dictator of this. But, you know, it's called Bliss because it's like my bliss and love sharing that with people. But I really, I really strongly believe that Bliss would have been gone a long time ago if it hadn't changed. You know, it's hard to do a party that's one thing and keep it going for a really long time and not evolve because people get older, they have, get married, they have kids, they stop coming out. You know, I recognized this like a long time ago. 
after I've been doing bliss for like three or four years. Don't and point I'll... at me. I still go out. <laughs> no, no, no. We've had this conversation. We'll bring I'm it sorry. up. We've had I'm this sorry. conversation. <laughs> yeah, I'm not, I'm not pointing out your personal no. your personal life. No, no. <laughs> I love I love this point. This is super. This is super profound. Continue, please. Wait, wait I don't know if it's profound. No, it, it is. is. You have to change to it's, survive. It's just it's just common sense. You know, it's just accepting the inevitable and. You know, I had this conversation with my friends about three, four, or five years after I started Bliss, and they were like, man, I can't come out anymore. Like, everybody's so young. And and I just remember saying to them, it's like, dude, they're not young. The crowd's the same age. You and I just got older. <laughs> That's the only difference. And it's like, yeah, I get that. I, I see that, you know, there are very few people who were going to see me DJ in 2003 who are still going to see me DJ now. And a big part of that is that a lot of those people are older and they're they're not going out. Another big part of that is that the music that I play now is suited to me now in 2013, not me in 2003. So, you know, if me and my friends were into Blur or LCD Sound System or whatever, I still love those bands, but it's not what I play now. I play different stuff. You know, artists evolve. And... And it gets hard for people when they're invested in something to see it change because it becomes something that's no longer what they identify with as their core personality and identity. And that's tough. But you're right. Things need to evolve to live. Things need to evolve to survive. And they need to evolve to get better. And I try to do this as well as I possibly can because I feel like I won the lottery. I get to play records to people for a living. Like, just think about that for a second. That's a really big privilege. So if you don't take that responsibility seriously, there are tons of people who'd love to do that. Somebody would love to have my job. I got people after my job, like, you can't imagine. There are people so, being born every minute that are yeah, after your so job. So you got to try really hard, and I will do this as long as I possibly can. So the thing that you got to give for that privilege is work your ass off and do a really good job. This is a choose your own adventure now interview. Which would you rather talk about first? Because we're going to talk about both of them. The splendor and majesty that is U Street Music Hall, or your exciting project that has broken through international dance circles, Volta Bureau. Your choice, Will. Well, I mean, they're connected. You know, like, so I left my day job in 2007 and I was um, DJing. I had a successful party here called Bliss. And. You know, some of my friends, uh, Dave Nada and Jesse Titsworth, were making their own music and they were starting to get recognition. And and really, I was thinking about like, okay, what what am I gonna do now? And the advice that my friends were giving me was like, you can DJ in DC forever, Will, but if you want to DJ elsewhere and be known outside of DC, you gotta make your own music. So. So I just bought Ableton Live software in, in 2006 and locked myself in a room and taught myself how to use it, got tips from other people, looked at YouTube tutorials and made my first remix and worked with my friend Miguel Michaelian on some stuff. And so I had some remixes and then released, you know, uh, my first single in, in 2009 on, on Plant Music, which got... Um, the attention of Fatboy Slim and was played by him. 
This is Feelin', Will Eastman's first single. I'm feeling that. Then I did a remix of my friends Demerit and Tiesto played that, and it just sort of got some attention. And having a, a profile as an artist and as a DJ and as a promoter with Bliss is what led to U-Haul. I, I never could have had the opportunities with U-Haul if I hadn't a if I hadn't quit my day job and b if I hadn't started making my own music. Stuck on You by Demerit, Will Eastman's Sunrise Ibiza dub, as played on Tiesto's Club Life number 198 in January 2011. Madcap. Tristan Gardner featuring Paulina and Falling in the vocal remix. Now what do Marcus Schosso, Wolfgang Gardner and Virtual Volt have in common? Well, they're all on this week's show. Welcome to Tiesto's Club Life, and I'm Tiesto, stuck on you in the Will Eastman Ibiza Sunrise dub. Madcap. I'm not sure if some of the meetings that I had with people, uh, like when I met Eric Hilton in 2009 and, um, you know, pitched him this idea. Eric Hilton of Thievery Corporation. He's of Thievery Corporation and a local um, uh, restaurateur and, and bar owner. He owns, he owns half a dozen places here. and 18th Street Lounge, chief among them. Part of the team behind 18th Street Lounge. But my friend Brian, Brian Billion, is a good friend of mine and I've been DJing with him now for a decade. And... Uh, he going back to like a decade ago started telling me like dude you should open your own club and Hmm. i just told him for years like you're crazy like i don't want that responsibility like i have the best job i get to dj get paid leave at the end of the night i don't have to kick out the drunks or like clean the club or like pay the liquor bill get the liquor license or any of the rest of that stuff so the first thing that led to u street music hall was me quitting my day job becoming a full-time dj making my own music and over the course of that meeting people who had those expertise people who knew how to negotiate a lease or get a liquor license or order liquor or hire staff or do accounting and all the rest of that so that's what kind of led it to u-haul and brian introduced me to um Eric Hilton in 2009 and it was because I got to a point where I was like you know what I can see this working now if I have a team who can do this where people are doing their sort of expertise and so he introduced me to Eric and we had lunch um, over in DuPont Circle and I pitched him this idea of a um, an underground dance club with a no frills environment sort of a rock club vibe no attitude, no velvet rope, no bullshit, but a world-class, high-quality sound system. No VIP, no bottle service. No VIP, no no bottle service. Basically, the priorities emanating out from the music and, you know, DJ-focused. And some good, very good Vietnamese hot dogs. <laughs> I believe that's been discontinued, but it was a... Yeah, we had we had the fud dogs for the first first two years, but we're discontinued now. It was a shooting. It was a shooting so, star. If you sorry. were lucky enough to see it, oh, <laughs> cherish the memory. And so, <laughs> so we we shook on it on the idea. He was into it, and you know we opened U-Haul eight months later. Let's not gloss over that sound system that you briefly mentioned. 
it goes back to um, what your priorities are. As DJs, we knew what we wanted in a club and what sort of amenities we wanted, going right down to like the size of the DJ booth. And you know, you never have to squeeze past somebody in the U-Haul DJ booth. There are plenty of outlets. There's a fan so you don't get too hot. There's a place to put your drinks. You know, it's little things like that. The sight lines are and good. you're lit like a god. The lighting at U-Haul is just very basic. They're just two LED cans on either side, you know, so it, you're lit up and the, f the floor is, we try to keep the club dark, so if the DJ booth's lit up, yeah, I guess you do look a little bit like a god, but it's I, just I, so I, that I don't people be, can see it. I don't begrudge you one bit. <laughs> you're listening to Madcap, and we're speaking with Will Eastman, He's a DJ, music producer, and co-owner of U Street Music Hall, located downstairs at 11th and U Street Northwest. In November of 2012, Beatport.com rated their sound system number two in the entire United States. The whole thing behind the sound system was we interviewed like three different teams of contractors to do it and brought them in and... ITI Audio, who, who installed the sound system, gave a really great presentation. They were not the cheapest. In fact, they were the most expensive. Some of my partners wanted to go with the cheapest. And particularly me and Brian and Jesse as well, put our foot down and say, like, you have to stick with your principles in order to actualize your vision. And this is our vision. And trust us when we say that if we put our resources and priority here, that we will reap benefits down the line. It won't be immediately seen, but just trust us. And and they trust us. And this and this is going back to like, I'm not sure they would have trusted me if you know I wasn't a DJ who made a song that somebody like Tiesto played or something. You know what I mean? It, it does boil down to that. It's like my parents, you know, wondering what is their son doing with his life, and then. The Washington Post does a piece on me and I can mail the style section to my mom and dad and there's my photo and it's like, okay, somebody with credibility thinks that this is worthwhile. <laughs> I believe that there is a time, correct me if I'm wrong, there is a period of time where you are not legally allowed to sell alcohol any longer, but the club still stays open. Oh yeah, of course. Like the bar time is the same regardless. It's, th it's th three o'clock on on weekends, two o'clock during the week. And you'll stay open even though you're not possibly gonna make another dollar. Oh, yeah, I mean, that's it has nothing to do with the money. One of the things that is a real downer when you DJ at a club is when you get to that point at the end of your set and the manager or the owner of the club turns on the light and it's basically like, get the hell out, it's done. You know, that's a buzzkill. Like, when you're doing a performance as a DJ, you're taking people on a journey. And it's sort of like reading a book and you get to like the last 15 pages and somebody takes the book out of your hand and throws it in the trash. You'd be like, but I want to see how it ends. And they're like, no, you got to get out, lights up, go <laughs> home. You know, let's face it. <laughs> once the bar closes, majority of the people leave anyway. People filter out. You know, once you can't get a drink anymore, people realize it's time to go home. But there have been so many nights, and these these are the moments that are my favorite moments at U-Haul, when mm -hmm. it's somebody like Goldie or somebody like Maya Jane Cole. I was there. I was going to bring I that was, up. I was at Maya.
3.30, 10 people left in the place, everyone just transfixed. But those 10 people are having the best musical experience they've ever had in their lives. That's what I love about it. Like one of one of my greatest nights there was uh, with Fernando, a uh, uh, good friend of a good friend show. of the show, Print the Legend podcast. Uh, it was so late, and we were running around dancing like complete maniacs. And I don't really dance, <laughs> <laughs> and I was he doesn't like, dance at all. <laughs> and like I remember just just like like jumping around like just moving up moving from right in front of the DJ booth the bass carried me all the way to the back by the stage and it was just like a playground I was like this is out of control you know what I'm saying and that's why that's why I like the the, the fizzle out you know what I'm saying allow allow like allow the story to fade you know what I'm saying as, as the night as the night goes on I, I like that I like that as opposed to just light switch a huge difference and yeah. i like that you can yeah. get champagne uh, this is by the way this is the blatant we love you street music hall portion of the interview <laughs> i love I, I paid him 50 bucks to say that i love that you can get champagne you can get it but it doesn't come in a bottle baby that comes in a can you it's, can get a can of champagne at U Street Sophia Music Hall. Sofia Coppola champagne, yeah, in a can. How great is There is never going to be broken glass on the floor at U Street Music Hall. You will never cut your foot <laughs> dancing at that club. Well, that was a call that my partner Brian Miller made. And, Sorry, and brilliant call. Brilliant. It is, it is a really brilliant call. I mean, we have, like... Um, no bottles. We have cans. Um, the the glasses are a high quality polyurethane. They they kind of feel like glass, but they never break. And it's just kind of those small details that I feel you got to think about uh, in order to make the whole experience one that's really special. And broken glass is a bummer, you know. If <laughs> in the summertime people with open-toed shoes, you know, you have somebody drops a bottle, it's just a bummer. You know, you don't you don't want people bleeding from their feet at a dance club ever what about no photography you know that that one was kind of controversial <laughs> and i still get people complaining about it i get big name djs coming through you know flexing their muscles and being like i'm gonna be the first dj to bend u street music hall to my will and make them allow me to videotape this set and you know that is something that came about because to be honest, you know, we were really sick of this fever pitch of party photography that was happening in like the late 2000s here in DC. You know? I'll name no names. You couldn't go to any club without having, you know, some D-bag with a... Uh, a or or a, some nice person. A big... Well-intentioned uh, individual. Yeah, a, bi <laughs> a big, you know, like flash in your face. And as DJs and like party presenters, it's just a real bummer. So... You know, we just decided to take a cue from Berghain, which is a club in Berlin that doesn't allow photography and um, has a pretty famous policy about it and not allow it. I was kind of 
nervous about it when we opened and announced that, whether people would think we were being elitist. It has nothing to do with that. You know, it has nothing to do with disliking party photographs or limiting people's personal freedom. Uh, had nothing to do with that. And we found that when we opened, there was a, a really big positive response among the, amongst the community. I feel like if you go with your gut and you trust your instincts, you know, you'll find that if there's something that you like and that you prefer, that chances are there are a lot of other people out there who are thinking the same thing. Sometimes it just takes somebody having the guts to say it or do it, and then all of a sudden it becomes a no big issue. You know, we get we have nothing against party photography. I, I don't, and in fact, like the policy is is not really that that strict i mean we're not we're not nazis about it it to me it's not the letter of the policy it's the spirit of it yeah. so it's like people can take photos on their cell phones or whatever you know people post youtube videos of djs or whatever it's like i'm not gonna come over and confiscate your phone it has nothing to do with that but if somebody comes in with a flash and they take like 10 or 12 in a row then a security guard will ask you to stop and that's for your own good because if you're <laughs> spending time <laughs> taking photographs either pressing the the button on the camera or posing for it you're not concentrating on the music we're a club for music it's not for sitting it's not for having your photograph taken it's for dancing and listening to music that's the bottom line you know people want to think i'm a dick for that fine there are plenty of other clubs where you can go and take photographs and have your photograph taken that those clubs you, are for you that makes you a leader because when you go to u street <laughs> music hall you don't have to worry about it all you got to worry about are the people who are there. Am yeah. I allowed to sell roses at a <laughs> <laughs> Anymore? <laughs> Ever sure. again? Sure. Why not? I, I... <laughs> So how was it for you all uh, initially booking your first guests? I think I know this. I think I know who the first act ever opened to the public. Because there were like a couple of house shows or whatever were to, for you guys to break it in. But Beautiful Swimmers played the first opening set. Shout out to AFP and uh, Ari Goldman. Yeah. And they opened for Aeroplane. That's correct. Yeah. Aer Aeroplane played the opening night. and Italo Disco. Yeah. Hot um, stuff. And, uh, you know, it was funny. It was the first time I met those guys. They're sweethearts. And I had a big mustache at the time. And Vito, the first time, you know, if anybody knows knows Vito's personalities, he's, he's a little salty. But the first time I met him, he just kind of looked at me. And I had this big kind of Giorgio Moroder mustache. And he, he was like, you look like an Italo disco producer from the 80s. <laughs> and that was it. That's all he said to me the whole night. At the time, I was like, that's a weird thing to say. But then I was like, that's a compliment. compliment. I'll take Coming that. Him. Oh, yeah. I'll take that. But Aeroplane, it, it just happened. You know, it was perfect timing. They were a great act to open the club. They were still together. You know, they were playing kind of at the height of their first uh, wave of popularity. We couldn't spend a lot of time planning who we were going to have the first month we were open because we didn't know exactly when it was going to be open. But 
just like three weeks before that, the date became available, and um, and so uh, we locked it in, and they played. It was pretty beautiful, actually, that night. I remember it very vividly. But um, the first people to play at U-Haul, you know, we just, it was us and our friends, you know. I, I, it was me and Jesse and Nodestrom and um, Dubfire played an unannounced set. And those were sort of the soft opening nights where we didn't really tell anybody we were open. We just sort of like told some friends and we wanted to test out the system before it was actually open to the public. Those must have been some amazing nights. They were. I broke my foot on one. Was there photography during those nights? No. Good. No photos exist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I actually broke my toe the night that Nodderstone played. I was just so happy. Pussy came on and you they lost were, it. They were... <laughs> They were playing. <laughs> they were playing some track, and I literally jumped up from the crowd side, up on the booth to give Dave and Matt a high five or something. And when I came down, I broke my toe. So the first week where we U-Haul was open, I was on crutches. Vagina by Nodestrom. <laughs> That's Pussy by Nodestrom. One of the first groups to ever grace the booth at U Street Music Hall, co-owned by today's guest, Will Eastman. For the last few years, Eastman has been a part of Volta Bureau, alongside Micah Velian and Output Message. This is one of their first tracks together, called Alley Cat. It's an adaptation of Al Stewart's Year of the Cat. In December of 2011, the BBC radio legend Pete Tong gave Volta Bureau a huge boost by including Alley Cat on his globally followed show, The Essential Selection. Heard Toddler banging this out on last week uh, on the Annie show when he was sitting in Volta Bureau. Friday night record. It's called Alley Cat. Are you ready for the weekend? Are you dancing? Tell me about it. That was a really special moment. The track, of course, I'm referring to is Alley Cat. This thing has gone global. Yeah, and um, people are still discovering it. It's, it's, it's one of the great things about music, you know. Look at our Twitter feed, and every day there'll be like three or four teenagers in France or somebody from Malaysia posting about, you know, a link to this YouTube video for Alley Cat. And, you know, for us, when your music snobs and, you know, this is what you do for a living and you're always, like, hyper-scrutinizing music, you know, to people like us, it's an old song. It came out in 2011. But 
the beauty of seeing this happen firsthand is that for these folks, they're discovering it now for the first time. They're just hearing it, and they love it, and they think it's a great track, and they want to tell their friends about it, and that's a beautiful thing. To see something that you've been involved with have that sort of like lifespan and, and to blossom and to continue to blossom. And be like, timeless. Like people, the the trajectory of SoundCloud plays on it keeps going up. You know, there were more SoundCloud plays last week than there were the week before or the week before that. So it's fun. It's beautiful. It's uh, myself, Mike Avellian, and Output Message, and um, you know all three of us are DJs and producers and um, musicians. And we had been working out of the same studio space for a while, and um, and uh, you know I did a remix for them. Um, they they had a duo called Demerit. Um, that's the one that Tiesto put on his podcast. And Output Message did a remix. Uh, I did a remix for him and. Uh, you know, Miguel and I did a single together on Plant, and we were all just kind of like working together towards similar aims, and so it just made sense to kind of um, partner together and bring all of our expertise onto one team. And you know, we all have like our own areas of expertise, so it's mutually beneficial to work with other people because somebody can do something, you know, a lot better than you. Like Miguel's whole uh, steez is the bass. You know, he does all of our bass lines and he does a really good job with them. And we came together in May 2011. Um, we posted a bunch of tracks for free on our SoundCloud. Alley Cat was one of them. Uh, Nervous Records picked it up and, you know, went to number one on Beatport and was in the top 100 for like a year. We're working on new new material right now. We have a live show that we we recently rolled out. We played our first showcase in Austin at South by Southwest. And How was that? Great. You know, we had some sound issues. I think everybody has sound issues in, at South by Southwest. But after the first couple songs, we nailed them and, you know, was doing well. What's the live setup? Who plays what? Bernard sings. He does vocals and keyboards. Miguel plays bass and, and synthesizer. I play guitar and do backup vocals, and I also do the DJ, the backing tracks. It's fun. Nodestrum. Yes, sir. In my opinion, would be probably the musical leaders of dance DC, if you want to call it that, at this point. They're just crushing it, and they're bringing such an original style. Moombatone Massive. Gotta feel like a jewel in the crown of U Street Music Hall right Most now. Most definitely. First of all, I'm, I'm very, very, very proud of those two dudes. You know, I've had the privilege of knowing them both now for, for quite a while, and they've been very inspiring and influential to me. You know I'm not one to break promises. I don't want to hurt you, but I need to breathe. It's 
blows me away to think of somebody that I know personally creating an entirely new genre of music. But on the other hand, it's like not surprising that Dave Nana did it. But there's something inside that I need to release. Those guys have figured it out. They've figured out how to do music. Music is not easy to do well. I have a lot of respect for people who do music well. And Dave and Matt and Otterstrom do music very well. How about working with Titsworth? You guys get brought up in the same sentence now all the time because of your U Street Music Hall connection. Yeah, Jesse's an extremely talented DJ, and he has, he could DJ circles around just about anybody I've ever seen DJ. <laughs> he has this, like, tremendous spirit and personality, which is always, like, a great asset when he's going out on the road and promoting stuff and doing his, his DJ sets. and. There's a reason why, you know, he goes and tours in Asia and Australia and gets lots of followers on Facebook and Twitter and people follow his escapades with tattoos and whatever weird food he's eating that day. Octopus and whatnot. <laughs> Jesse is a personality engine. He's a lot more flashy and flamboyant than I am. I, I have a hard time sort of like on Facebook and Twitter, you know, posting stuff that maybe people would instantly like or you know think is cool or whatever i'm i'm a nerd i was trained as a historian so i've had a challenge in my career and jesse is very good at getting me to like lighten up it's been a really good sort of experience working with him we mutually sort of help one another i feel like i'm maybe the guy who's who's a little more responsible who will say no don't Stand on top of that car that's going 50 miles an hour on the freeway. <laughs> Don't ghost ride the whip. <laughs> and uh, and he might be the dude where it's like, yo, unbutton your top button. <laughs> dude, untuck your shirt. <laughs> this is Rabid, released on Main Course Media. I feel like we are living in a very special time especially if you are interested in a fan of, a lover of, or a producer of electronic dance music. We are living in an unprecedented time. It's a good time to be alive. Will Eastman is a musician, DJ, and part owner of U Street Music Hall, where his long-running party, Bliss, takes place and he also produces with the DC-based group Volta Bureau. We thank him for all he's done for DC and for joining us on Madcap. You can see Will Eastman spin at U Street Music Hall alongside Oscar on January 11th at a party called Rev 909, French House, Daft Punk, and Indie Dance Classics. He's also delivering a six-hour set open to close on January 25th. For more information, visit willeastman.com. Find Will on Twitter, Facebook and SoundCloud, and you can visit blisspop.com. Volta Bureau also has their own social media pages, and we'll post links to all of them at madcapdc.org. Madcap is produced by Dan Bloom, 
David Ross, and Afim Shapiro. MadcapDC.org, on Facebook and Twitter, at MadcapDC.